Identifying J.M. Coetzee as an inspiring great writer is not as straightforward as it might seem. If you want your great writers to be spotless icons, serenely floating above the murky complexity of their time or cultures, then Coetzee will come as something of a disappointment. As the play on his own name in his first book, Dusklands, suggests, he studiously refused such an impossibly lofty position from the outset of his career. Coetzee appears not only on the cover of Dusklands, which was first published in 1974, but in the two stories it tells as well. First, as the name of an agent of American atrocities in Vietnam, then as the name of a megalomaniacal frontiersman in colonial South Africa. Or if you want your great writers to be paragons of virtue in their private lives, then you'll be dismayed to read about the comically absurd bungler called John Coetzee, whose misadventures run through boyhood, youth, and summertime, the sequence of three autobiographical fictions Coetzee has published since 1997. Finally, if you want your great writers, and especially your Nobel laureates, to dispense moral wisdom with all the authority of a Victorian sage or a contemporary media pundit, then you'll find the all-too-human author figure called J.C. in Diary of a Bad Year deeply discouraging. J.C., who is also called Juan, produces a series of Nobel laureate-like strong opinions about the current state of the world, only to have them repeatedly mocked and deflated by his typist and her unscrupulous banker of a boyfriend. Diary of a Bad Year was published in 2007, four years after Coetzee himself won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Of course, if you like postmodern twists, you could argue that this catalogue of disappointments is precisely what makes Coetzee a great writer. He insists that we, as readers, ask ourselves, and not just ourselves, but our cultures, why we have such great expectations of writers. What do we want from them? And what forces shape our expectations? There's something to be said for this, I think, but what I'd like to suggest today is that like most writers worth taking seriously, Coetzee's greatness lies primarily in the ways his writing disrupts our everyday, often unthinking relationship to the English language and its complex cultural background. This is because reading Coetzee is a bit like visiting another country, in which English is spoken, but strangely. At first, you think you know what is being said and, more importantly, meant. Then slowly, as you become more attuned to the idioms and nuances of the place, you realize you have to start attending to what you took to be your own language in a wholly different way. In all of this, I'm assuming you are, like me, among the 330 million first-language English speakers in the world today. A very different set of questions comes up if you read Coetzee in one of the 26 or so languages into which his work has so far been translated. 
So to give you an idea of what this linguistic disruptiveness feels like in practice, I'd like to focus briefly on just two examples. The first comes from Kutsia's fifth book called Faux, which was published in, in 1986. From the start, it's clear that Faux is explicitly in dialogue with Daniel Defoe's classic 18th century English novel, Robinson Crusoe. If you haven't heard rumors about this before you open the book, you'll be in no doubt by the time you reach page seven of the Penguin edition. There, Kutsia's own castaway narrator, Susan Barton, tells us that the first figure she meets on her own desert isle is a black slave called Friday. Two pages later, she identifies his master as Crusoe. Like Defoe's original, Kutsia's story is set in the age of slavery. These explicit signals may tempt you into reading Foe as a fairly predictable act of postmodern or perhaps even postcolonial rewriting. Yet as we read on, we quickly discover that this kind of reading is not going to be easy. Since Kutsia's Crusoe is on a number of levels clearly not Defoe's. Among other things, he could never be mistaken for a hero of the emergent British Empire. Kutsia's Crusoe is ridiculous, barely articulate, and deeply unimaginative, though he is, like his original prototype, still paranoid about cannibals. The difference between the two Crusoes is signaled from the start via a seemingly trivial detail. Kutsia's Crusoe is spelt without the final E. In Defoe, we have this, C-R-U-S-O-E. In Kutsia, we have C-R-U-S-O. This detail seems, at best, pedantic, the kind of thing you'd expect from an Oxford lecture, until you begin to think through its wider implications. Crucially, when I said the name Crusoe, this particular difference that I've just pointed out was impossible to detect. At the phonological level, as words spoken to be heard, Crusoe sounds the same, with or without the E. It is only at the morphological level, as words written or printed to be read, that the difference becomes apparent. This small instance of linguistic disruptiveness might seem like the emptiest of postmodern word games. But we need to bear in mind that in Kutsia's book, Friday never speaks. His tongue has been cut out. And unlike his more voluble and pliant prototype, Defoe's original Friday, he never learns to read or write. He lives outside what Susan Barton calls the fullness of human language. Though given his humming and dancing, not outside the realms of human expression. 
As such, the Silent Friday marks a series of limits that put him beyond Susan's meaning-making capacities as a narrator. The story is in some ways about her frustrations of trying to make sense of Friday, but also, importantly, beyond the, the English culture of letters to which Defoe and Kutzea both belong as authors, and for us, of course, beyond us as readers. By discreetly drawing attention to the act of reading and the printed book that is in our hands, that oddly absent E does a lot of work. Most importantly, it makes it impossible for us to feel safely outside the culture and forms of understanding foe questions so relentlessly. A culture that extends from Defoe via Kutzea and the history of the English novel to us. My second example of Kutzea's linguistic disruptiveness is the opening sentence of Disgrace, which first appeared in 1999. This example is less pointedly directed to us as readers, though it also has the effect of making us look at familiar English words in new ways. This is how disgrace begins. For a man of his age, 52, divorced, he has, to his mind, solved the problem of sex rather well. As a sentence, this couldn't be simpler. The syntax is straightforward, the words are unambiguous, and the point of view wholly conventional. A disembodied third-person narrator reports what is going on in the mind of the main character, David Lurie. As we read on, however, the sentence becomes stranger and stranger. We soon learn, for instance, that as a statement, it's simply false. A few pages on, Lurie, who is a professor of English, you'll be delighted to know, becomes embroiled in a sexual harassment scandal, which ultimately costs him his job. So he clearly hasn't solved the problem of sex at all. However, as we work our way through the labyrinth of disgrace, which is as much about sexuality as it is about creativity and the lives of animals, it gradually becomes clear that David's problem is not so much that he's failed to solve the problem of sex, but that he thinks of sex as a problem to be solved, as if desire is something like a long division sum or a blocked sewer. At this point, the first sentence becomes much trickier to read. Far from being a simple report on David's attitudes, it is the first opportunity disgrace takes to hold up and scrutinize the rationalistic language and way of understanding the world to which David, a self-declared Westerner, as he calls himself, living out his last days in post-apartheid South Africa, is initially committed. As we read on, we learn that this rationalistic language, which disgrace traces back to the 17th century French philosopher René Descartes, not only underpins David's deformed attitudes to desire, it also makes possible 
a certain kind of thinking associated primarily with the Western tradition according to which some human beings come to be seen as animals and animals seen as mere things. By the time we reach the end of disgrace, those seemingly innocent, seemingly transparent five words solved the problem of sex begins to look like one of the most questionable phrases in the English language, resonating as it does with some of the worst crimes of the 20th century. Thanks. <laughs>